this room. Uh, as you heard earlier, our 915 service, it blew out. God met us. I lost some of my suit. So I want to thank Tiffany Rickert and Bridget Netto for performing surgery in the office and putting my button back on. Uh, so, hey, if I lose another button, that's all right. That means we're going to have a good time here this morning. Uh, but I just want to read one scripture uh, this morning. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. And it says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. There is a treasure in every single one of us. And I think we have to recognize that we are earthen vessels. In other words, we are all made of flesh. Every single one of us, we are made of flesh. That means we have a sin nature, which we'll get into in just a moment. But each and every one of us, there is a treasure inside every single one of us. And it has to be a God thing. It's not something that you can develop. It's not something that you can work on it, but it's something that God gave you. And uh, it can't be through the power of yourself, but through the power of God. And so this morning, we're going to deal with the subject, dealing with shame, dealing with shame. Lord, I am grateful for what we've already felt this morning through the worship and that you have engaged with us. And so now, God, as you begin to speak to us, I am asking that every ear and heart would be open, that, Lord, you would anoint every word that I have, which you have given me this morning, God. But, Lord, he that hath an ear, let him hear. So, God, I'm asking that there would be just something open in this room that you can sweep through this house. And by the end of this message, and we pray a little bit at the end, that something will shift in somebody's life and that our lives will be changed when we leave these doors. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. There is a difference between guilt and shame. Guilt is the fact of having committed a breach of conduct, especially violating law and involving a penalty. Shame is a painful emotion caused by consciousness of guilt or shortcoming. Oftentimes, shame will attach itself to guilt. They're not the same. There is guilt and there is shame, and shame will often attach itself to guilt. You see, guilt is attached to an action in a moment of time when you do something wrong or when you realize something is wrong. So in a moment of time when there is an infraction, something we do that is wrong, something that happens to us that is wrong, you immediately feel guilt. There is a guilt conscience that happens. But shame, shame is an emotion that is attached to the action long after the moment. So guilt occurs in the moment Shame happens after the moment. So there is a difference between the both of them. See, guilt says, I did something bad. Shame says, I am something bad. Guilt will tell you, I messed things up. I made a mess. But shame will tell you, I am a mess. There's a difference of how you speak into your life and what happens into your life. Whereas you are plagued with guilt and you have a decision to make or you live in shame, which is an emotion that comes after the guilt. See, shame isolates us. What ends up happening, if we're being honest, is, listen, every one of us, we deal with things we're not proud of. Every single one of us in this room have something that you would be embarrassed about. And see, a lot of times when you look at shame, it'll isolate us because we'll say, hey, hey, you know, if they only knew what I did, they wouldn't love me. If they only knew what I was watching, they would stay away from me. If they would only know my inner thoughts where nobody else can see them, how would they behave around me? Listen, if we were to take everybody's phone this morning and we were to upload it to the screen behind me, how many people would be standing left in this room? Listen, if you were to tell your friends what you really thought about them when you're ticked, 
I'd like to know how that relationship would really work out for you. If you really told your spouse sometimes what you really feel about him or her, I'd like to know how that would work out sometimes. Every one of us, we have a sin nature. There is shame inside of us. And so how are we navigating that? Are we holding on to the shame or are we releasing it and not living into it? But every one of us in this room, we are impacted by shame one way or another. Not everything that's happened to you is what you have asked. There are some things that's happened to some of you in this room that, you know what, you didn't ask for that. And you live in a state of shame because of something you couldn't control. Then there are some things that we have done on our own cognizant. We were aware and we engaged in something we shouldn't have. And now we're locked into shame. But shame is a struggle for every single person. And I will give you a great example of this. If you go to the beginning of Genesis, the very first one, the very first few stories, if you look at the first two chapters of Genesis, the first two chapters deal with creation. Remember, he created this. Everything was good. He was creating, created man. And one of the best parts of creation was he created woman. And it was great. But here's the thing. When he created, he said it was good. Breathe life into us. It was good. And watch the last verse, verse 25 of chapter two. Watch what it says at the very end of creation. It says, and they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. There was no shame in the Garden of Eden. When all was said and done in creation, there was no shame. But all it takes is the next verse. Genesis chapter three and verse one. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field, which the Lord hath made. And he said unto the woman, yea, hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. So here the enemy makes his first appearance to man. And he begins to tempt Eve and question what God said. Remember, the first two chapters, it was good. Everything was great. Creation was fine. It was perfect in the garden. But all of a sudden, now we're dealing with the serpent. And so here in Genesis chapter 3 and verses, uh, verse 7, well, really, I'll read 6 through 8. It says, and when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. So remember, go back to the last verse of chapter two. They were both naked. They were vulnerable and there was no shame. The minute sin enters in, they took part of that fruit that they were told not to in disobedience. They broke their relationship with God. And all of a sudden now they're made aware of their vulnerability. So what is the first thing? They felt guilty, right? Oh, no, we're vulnerable. They felt guilty. What did they go do? They made themselves aprons of fig trees and covered themselves. Now, it would have been different if they would have covered themselves and remained in that state. Now, according to scripture, as as we read, there seems to be a pattern here where God would walk in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve. So it's it was a pattern that he had. Listen, there ought to be many of us in this room that we have a pattern with God. There ought to be a specific time of day or night that you are meeting with God through prayer and devotional. If you're not doing that, there ought to be a time where God misses you. Where God says, hey, I miss you today in prayer. I miss you in your devotional time. It shows that there was a pattern with Adam and Eve on what they would do in the cool of the day when they would walk with God. But what did they do? Number one, we just figured they felt guilty. They were vulnerable. They covered themselves. And then it reads that they went and they hid from the Lord. 
So now the Lord is coming and saying, hey, where are you, Adam? Where are you, Eve? I miss talking to you guys. He could have said, Lord, I I made a mistake. I messed things up. I'm sorry. But now outside of the guilt in the moment of change, he now changes their identity. They say, hey, you know what? We're runners now. We're no longer just friends with the Lord. I'm a runner. They went and hid themselves. Why? Because of the guilt that they experienced. Now they're living in shame. They're hiding from him. It started with guilt and it ended with shame because they were now hiding from the Lord. See, guilt is action based and shame is identity based. Shame will help change your identity if you live in shame. It will change who you are. We all struggle with this because some of us, we didn't ask to be born into the family we were born into. Some of us didn't ask to be born into a crisis situation. There are some things that happened to you you didn't ask for when you were younger. There are some things that you did that you're embarrassed and you're ashamed of. And so when the guilt comes, many of us will repent or will be sorry for it. But then there's the shame where we run and hide. We change our identity. We become runners. We were never meant to become runners. We were never meant to isolate. So now Adam and Eve are dealing with shame. They hid themselves from the Lord. See, people who struggle with shame, they exhibit certain behaviors. We've all heard this. Hurting people hurt people. Well, shameful people shame people. One of the very things that you'll find yourself if you're living in shame and living under that condemnation where the enemy has fed you a full of lies into where now all of a sudden you didn't just operate out of guilt and repented. You are living now in your mess. You have accepted where you are. It's you become critical of yourself, but it never stops with you. If you become critical of yourself, you'll become critical of others. Isn't it funny that our sin always looks worse when somebody else commits the same thing? It always looks worse. I remember reading a book with our team, The Advantage, and we were talking about uh, the different things that that we go through and and uh, just just trying to be vulnerable with one another. And it's funny when we were going through some of the exercises, it's like, listen, if I'm late to a meeting, what happens? Well, it was a red light. The kids weren't ready. I had to grab lunch, hadn't eaten all day. It was a late night. There are all these excuses and I was late to the meeting. But what happens when somebody else is late to a meeting? They don't care. They don't value my time. They didn't prepare enough. They should have left early. We'll give ourselves all of the grace and the excuse. But to everybody else, it's their fault. They don't care. You become so critical of other people. Why? Because if you're critical of yourself, it's easier to hide it when you become critical of other people and you blow up their spot. You start looking at their issue and blowing it up. So you don't have to actually be honest with yourself. We become very critical When we are in a shame state, the other behavior you'll see is that they'll overcompensate to cover their shame. I was on the phone with somebody the other day and and uh, I've never been a Bigfoot grave digger type guy with the big trucks. Never been that kind of dude. Love trucks, but just never got into that. I'll never forget. There was it was a white truck. Dude had to have like 30 inch rims, had to have been at least an eight inch lift. I mean, it was a truck. That bro came out of this. He was a solid four and a half foot. I'm like, this dude, he had to run to jump on the foot, like the, the, the bar of the truck, just to get inside the truck. I'm like, bro, just get a car. Just get a little car. You can just scoot right in, chief. But he went and got, I'm like, we've all said, like, you're compensating for something. Like, bro, we get it. Like, we all know, like, listen, I get it. And, and, and I'm just telling you, it's like you can overcompensate for your shortcoming. I, listen, we all know people like this. 
Right? You ever hear of you're just so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good? Right? Man, you ever, listen, we're, we're all humans. Let's just be honest right now. The Boston Celtics made it to game seven. Yes, yes, yes. It was 0-3. Listen to me. This is a miracle. The Boston Celtics could make it to the finals come Monday. I'm just saying. Do you ever meet those people, though, that you try to talk about, like, man, listen, I'm so glad the Boston Celtics made it to game seven. Man, I'm so glad that I'm in the Lord's game. Bro, we're talking about a game. Like, listen, man, I'm so glad. Man, I can't wait to get home and eat pizza. I'm so glad I am full of the bread of life. Like, you can't even have a normal conversation. Listen, I'm all for talking about Jesus. and But listen, we're still human beings. We're still people. It doesn't mean all we do is walk around quoting scriptures all day. Like, you still got to go to work and be civil. Like, you still got to punch in the clock and walk people through their IT issues. You still have to, like, we live in a real world here. But sometimes I get a little worried when you can't have that conversation. Everything's spiritual. Like, they don't know. Like, they can't talk about anything unless it's scripture-based. Like, are we compensating for something here? Like, what do you like? Like, you don't have to blow up that you're this big-time Christian and we're all poor us. We don't read the Bible 24 hours a day. Like, I do this for a living. I don't read the Bible 24 hours a day. Just being honest with you. Like, I have kids. I have a wife. I have a mortgage to pay. Like, I, I got things I got to do. But a lot of times when you're living in shame, you overcompensate because you're trying to mask what you're really dealing with on the inside. And so that way you can get the approval of others because you disapprove of who you really are. It is fueled by your shame and not your calling. Listen, too many people operate in the lane they don't belong in. Like not everybody has the gift of prophecy. Not everybody has the gift of healing. Not everybody, like, listen, we can all tap into gifts, but I'm just saying, all the, oftentimes we try to become something we're really not for an approval of the people. And that's God saying, I didn't call you to do that. I didn't call you to become that. Stop trying to mask what your real issues are and throwing around these words. We have to be accountable for how we present ourselves, but we oftentimes are fueled by the wrong agenda and we operate out of shame instead of our calling. Oftentimes we'll use self-defeating thoughts or words, or sometimes we'll use these thoughts to uh, denigrate who we are, and and oftentimes that affects the relationships that you have. We've all heard, never be the smartest one in the room. Always challenge yourself with smarter people than you. Always always build relationships with people that are better than you, marriages that are healthier than yours. Always make sure people aspire. Listen, be around wealthy people. Aspire to something. Oftentimes, when you are locked into shame and you are living a life of shame, what ends up happening? All of a sudden now, you lower the expectation of your relationships because why? You want to be the top dog. You want to be on top. And be careful, those of you that are in leadership or that aspire to leadership, oftentimes we prey on those that are more vulnerable with us. Why? Because we'll look like a leader to them. When all we're doing is trying to mask what's on the inside, when it's like, listen, if you're a leader, you can lead anybody in the room. But if all you do is prey on somebody that is less fortunate than you, that isn't where you are spiritually, just so you feel better about yourself, you are operating out of shame and not out of the calling that God has given you. But humanity loves to build up and tear down. We're human, just like Adam and Eve. They were human, and yet they had a flaw. They had sin in their life, but they chose to operate out of shame and not just deal with the guilt and move forward. Last week, we learned a lot about Michael Jordan, so I thought it'd be fitting to continue a little bit more today. Well, in 1993, Michael Jordan struggled with a gambling issue, and he was in the NBA. They were on the verge of winning their third championship. And here, uh, it became big news that Jordan was uh, in a lot of debt, 
for what we would look like as day, he was writing checks of over $50,000 trying to cover different, you know, golfing games he was gambling on. And so uh, David Stern, the commissioner, they, they all looked into it. And, and it's like, listen, for him to drop 50 grand on a game is probably like me spending $5 at a card game, which I don't do. But that's probably the equivalent, right? Five bucks, 50 grand to him. He's making millions. But here, Ahmad Rashad, who was, he, he played in the NFL, a former athlete and a sportscaster. This is what he said. People build you up to tear you down. And it happens in sports all the time. If a team wins too much, you want them to lose. The public has an appetite for these kinds of rise and fall narratives. We do that in the church. We set people on pedestals, but we're quick to pull them down as soon as we see their humanity. I remember there was a pastor in another state, an associate pastor. He had been in an accident. He was struggling with a lot of pain, and he became addicted to his pain medication, but he had such a, such a prominent seat in his church and in his community. He was so ashamed of it that he couldn't tell anybody. Well, one night he was in such severe pain, he took some of the medication on his way home. He was pulled over by an officer, and the front page of the news the next day was that he had suffered a DUI. The church was on full display, and ultimately him and his wife lost everything at that church. Why? Because they felt so ashamed of what they were struggling, but they didn't have a safe place to go to because they felt it was so shameful that they were addicted to something that initially was good for them to help them, but actually caught up to them. And so they were dealing with shame. We love to put people on a pedestal in the church, but we love to take, as soon as you find out they're human, we're quick to pull them right back down, that they don't suffer, that they don't understand it. And that's a shame when that happens in the church and not just out in your workforce, not in your work. It happens right here in the church. The Bible is intentional to give us moments of humanity to balance moments of deity. That helps us because oftentimes we will alienate like Adam did. We're going to run because we're dealing with shame. We're going to run because there's something that we're humiliated, we're embarrassed about. And so I thought it was fitting that I would bring a special guest to kind of paint the picture before we walk through scripture on what it looks like to be human, but yet have this deity, have this this superhero, this superpower. So I have asked Spider-Man to come join me up here, and he's going to help me uh, kind of walk through what it looks like. So give a, give a hand to Spider-Man. He didn't have to fight traffic. He just spun his little webs and got here. But man, who here is thankful for Spider-Man? The Bible talks about, yeah. The Bible talks about angels unaware. I believe there's Spider-Man unaware. I don't know how many accidents Spider-Man could have saved you from as you're driving down the road. And he just, listen, that car that just happened to get in your lane and jerk the other way, it probably was Spider-Man with his web yanking the car back, right? So I think Spider-Man, why don't you go ahead and show us, show us some of those web moves that you have. Tell, what does it look like? Is that, is that, man, you got a double one, you got a single, he's going, man, I think over here. Hey, Spider-Man, let's, right here, let's go show them too. They, they haven't seen any of your webs. You got to go throw some webs out here. You throw them some webs. There you go. And Spider-Man, look at all he does for us. Aren't you thankful that there's a man that is looking for you, that is pulling things out of your way and rescuing you? But I believe that Spider-Man, isn't just here with his webs. Like sometimes you have to fight people face to face, right? What's some of the moves that you have when you have to fight them? Let me, what are those? Woo, that kick. Got him. Get him. Look at that. Poof. Man, I, I don't want to. Okay. Like, listen, man, I ain't, I ain't trying to fight you. Okay. And this is, man, aren't we thankful that we have Spider-Man that'll protect and help us? Does a great job. But man, everybody loves a superhero until we find out that the superhero is still human. Are you always a superhero? Always? Can, 
who who is this though for real? <gasps> it's Leo. Okay. I know it's Leo. Man, okay. Now Liam, let's be honest. Do you ever get mad? Yes. Oh. Okay. When you get mad, listen, nobody else says, it's just me and you, buddy, okay? When I get mad, sometimes I say things I shouldn't. When you get mad, do you ever say things you shouldn't? Is that a yes? I th- yes. Oh, okay, okay. Now, let me ask you this. Have there been, has there been every time that somebody hurt your feelings? Yeah? Yes. Were you pretty ticked off at them? Mad? Yes. You were mad? So sometimes, do you ever disobey? Well, come here. We don't want mom and dad to know. Is there sometimes... <laughs> Is there sometimes that you disobey mom and dad? Yes. Oh, okay. Well, they don't know. Shh. Okay, they didn't hear. They didn't see that. So sometimes you, oh, man. So Superman actually has feelings? Is that true? Spider-Man, Spider-Man not Superman. <laughs> Oof. Listen. Good catch, Chief. Spider-Man actually has feelings, right? But what do we do? Oftentimes, we'll put Spider-Man on a pedestal because, man, when Spider-Man is saving us, it's all great. But the moment Spider-Man shows a flaw, what do we do? We're done with him. Is that right? Man, give it up for Spider-Man one more time. Thanks, buddy. So God is trying to show us that we love this superhero, but when you find out that he's just a man, we'll oftentimes pull him down. We'll oftentimes start to find those, the, the fractures in his armor and we'll try to destroy people. Why? Because now we can see the humanity when we ourselves are just as broken as they are. And we fight with shame because why? God has gifted us. I, I, you know, every gift is given from the Lord. His gifts are without repentance. He has given every one of us in this room a gift and that we're to use it for the kingdom. But there are times when we make mistakes doesn't throw out your gift. It doesn't throw you away. But when you live in shame, it starts to now change your identity and you become a runner. You can be like Adam. I'll give you an example. David, we all love to read the story of David. Here, David has written most of the Psalms and several of the books, and, and we aspire. He was a chief musician. He helped build Solomon's temple. He, st- he stocked all of the material for that. A key role. Actually, the, the Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart. But let's look at David. There was one day David should have been at war and he stayed home. Come nighttime, David couldn't go to sleep. He woke up. I I was wondering, why did David wake up? He wasn't at war. He should have felt he was safe at home. I believe David felt like he was out of sync. He wasn't living his purpose. He was supposed to be in battle. He didn't follow what he was supposed to do. And all of a sudden now David's at home. He's awake because he wasn't operating in his purpose, what he should have been doing. And so now David goes up to the rooftop on a walk and he sees Bathsheba bathing and he asks, hey, who's that girl? One of his men said, oh, that's Uriah's wife. Uriah was doing what he was supposed to do. He was in battle. David was at home. David calls for Bathsheba, takes her as his wife, impregnates her. You would think like, oh, shoot, this girl's pregnant. You know what? I got I got to come clean. No, this cat. Calls out Uriah from battle and is like, listen, go home. You've been, you, you've been working real hard. Just go home to your wife. Trying to conceal. He's trying to hide the affair. Uriah was such a man of character that he said, I can't leave my men on the battlefield and go home. So he sleeps on the steps of, of, of the king's palace. He refuses to go home. So David, in his bright idea, decides, all right, cool. You know what he did? He sent him to the front line to have him killed. And Uriah makes it to the front line and Uriah is murdered. 
So the very David that the church loves to sing, we pen a lot of our music from his very own words, is the very man that had an affair and that tried to conceal it, and he murdered another person over that. And this is the man we're talking about, a man after God's heart, that David, that God loved David, but this is a man with an affair and a murder of many things. And the shame that David had to fight when, until he lost that baby. The Bible actually says that when, when Nathan the prophet came and exposed him of his sin, he said, man, you're going to lose that baby. David went and prayed for the life of that child. And I believe that baby lived for nine months out of the womb. I believe it was nine months that baby lived and that baby finally died, just like Nathan the prophet called out. And it was at that point, his men tried feeling. It was David was in the fields and he, he was mourning and praying that God would rescue that baby. And when, the, when it came to pass and that child lost its life, David got up cleansed himself and kept on moving. Why? Because David went from feeling shame to healing. He operated in shame. This is our example. Look at Jonah. Jonah was a Jewish prophet. He lived in northern Israel. Now, God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh to rescue Nineveh. Nineveh was a city that the Lord had enough. There's so much sin and corruption. He said, you know, what? I'm going to wipe them all out unless they repent. So he sends a prophet to Nineveh. Here's the problem. You've got a Jew from northern Israel that hates Nineveh. Why? Nineveh is, is from Assyria. It's an Assyrian country. If you know the history between Assyria and Israel, they were for hundreds of years, they fought each other. And so Jonah hates the Ninevites because they were in battle with his people for years and won. And so he's like, you're going to send me to go save them jerks? No way. So he takes off and he, he starts running gets on his ship, and a storm comes, and those that are working on the ship, they start interrogating everybody. Why is this happening to us? They get to, know, they get to Jonah. Watch what Jonah says in chapter 1 and verse 9 of Jonah. And he said unto them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, which hath made the sea and the dry land. So why would he say, I'm a Hebrew, if he was a Jew? Well, if you study the culture that time, there were gods that were territorial of every tribe. Depending where you were would depend on which God you had, and it was a territorial God. Once you left that piece of property or that, that country, that God had no more authority or power outside of his lane. But when you say, I serve the Hebrew God, everybody knew that God had no limitation. He was borderless. If you serve the Hebrew God, he can go anywhere and do anything he wants to. So their best option was to throw this dude off the boat. Now, mind you, this is a prophet. This is supposed to be a man of God. He was one of the oldest two of the prophets. And here he gets thrown off the boat. And now a big fish swallows him up. I'm sure he had the best prayer meeting of his life for those three days. Because, man, that, that fish threw him up on Nineveh and he preached the best message. I bet you if he was an evangelist, he would have got paid the best. I mean, he turned the whole city that was supposed to be damned. The whole city ends up making it. And the whole city is saved. Why? Because of a backslidden prophet that went there, that fought God. But here's the rest of the story. As Jonah is leaving Nineveh and they all live, he's ticked. He wished they all died because of what they did to his ancestors. He's holding on to something from the past. He's ashamed of his past with Assyria. And so now he sits under a tree and God basically, I'll give you the, the, the cliff notes. 
Basically, God says, you don't have a right to tell me who I can say. Aren't you thankful that God doesn't listen to somebody else to say if you're worth it or not, that you're worth it to him? He died on the cross for you. He didn't listen to anybody else. When people would have written you off, thrown you away, God is saying, listen, I'm coming for you. You're worth it. But for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He saw you as joy and he endured the cross for you. And so here, Jonah upset in his shame because of how he felt towards the Ninevites and the Assyrians and what happened to his, the history of his ancestors. He's holding on to a grudge for years. Jonah was a bigot. He was prejudiced against these people. And if it was up to him, he would have had God kill them all. And yet God still used him in spite of his prejudiced ways and used him to save a whole city. And there, the very last thing you really read in Jonah is Jonah sits down and basically prays a prayer of suicide because he was so ashamed of what happened and he was embarrassed that he wanted everybody to die when God said, that's not your call. It's my call. But we don't ever focus on that part of the story and the shame that Jonah has. We just focus on what? Man, he saved the whole city and prayed for a whole city, survived the whole big fish thing. But here is, a, here is a, an icon in the Bible of a man that dealt with shame. The last example I'll give you is Peter. Here, God calls Peter. We love Peter because we read about Acts 2.38 and everything that happened, and, and we celebrate the, the on-ramp that we've had in Scripture with, with Peter talking uh, on, in Acts 2.38 when he said, listen, repent, be baptized, in Jesus' name, receive the Holy Ghost. Man, we celebrate that as apostolics all day long. But let's look at Peter real quick. Here's a man that gets called from God, called by Jesus, and now he's, he witnesses how many miracles? The first miracle was his mother-in-law being healed and she was terminally ill. He watched the hand of Jesus over there. He was there defending Jesus when they came to take him after Judas betrayed him. And he cut the ear off the centurion and, and God healed him back. He's watched all these miracles. And here Jesus says, listen, Peter, you're going to betray me. And what did he say? Absolutely not. He said three times. No, I won't. I'm with you to the end. Okay. We all know the story that Peter ends up denying Jesus three times. And when and when the when the bird when the bird crowed, what happened? That rooster crowed, what happened? He knew immediately what he did. He held his his head in shame because he knew he was guilty of what God said he was going to do. And he and he just dipped his head down, ashamed, denying. And then you read after Jesus is resurrected, meets Peter. And Peter then is released from shame when? When he's met in a dream and Jesus said, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Three times, do you love me? Feed my sheep. And every time Peter said yes, and I feel he was saying yes to negate every time he denied Christ. That was when his shame was released from him. But we look at these characters in scripture and we're saying, hey, man, listen, this, listen, I, 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 I deal with shame, but, but these are the, the, they're better than I am. These are people that are in scripture. They did so much. These are horrible people, too, on some hand. Murderers, having affairs, wanting to kill a whole nation because you're prejudiced of what happened in your past. Peter's denying him, acting like he didn't know Jesus because he was embarrassed. And yet look at everything that was done through scripture through these men. Who are we to hold our heads down because we have some shame in our lives when God is saying, listen, I can still use you. You still have a future. I can change the direction of your life. Man, in the church, we love to say, now, if you're from the 90s, early 2000s, we used to say this. Keep it 100. Just keep it 100. We used to say that all the time. Listen, if you're using that 100 emoji, you're probably my age. Now it's accountable, right? Let's, let's, we need to be accountable, guys. Everybody's saying to be accountable. And we should be accountable. That's true. But watch this. You have to be careful who you keep it 100 with. You have to be careful who you're accountable with. 
Because the minute you start exposing some of those deep secrets and some of the shame that you have been living with, some of the things that you didn't ask for, some of the things that you did do, all of a sudden now you're putting your business out to everybody. What happens when you get the freedom of that shame and now then per, that, those people have, have your number? They know exactly what you did. And they'll hold you to it. You have to be very careful who you bring close to you and who you allow into your life. Sometimes it's easier, though, when we feel it from everybody else than, than when we have to deal with it with ourselves. I'll, I'll say this. I've said this story a, a billion times before, but if you haven't heard it, I'll tell you now. Several years ago, um, we were we were uh, we had a young adults conference here and church looks completely different. You're talking uh, maybe 15 years ago, 12 years ago, and it was a young adult conference. Things were changing. Culture was changing. And I'm here to tell everybody, listen, culture can change all it wants to. One thing that's never going to change at First Church is the message, the oneness of Jesus Christ. That's never going to change. Our stance on modesty is never going to change. We are apostolics. This is who we are. This is our identity. We're not changing anything. It's The message stays the same. It might look different, but it's going to be the same message. But I remember uh, me, Jeremiah, and Steve Rickert, uh, we had this Young Adults Conference here. And I remember the first time uh, we, we actually changed the lights in here. And, and we had zero budget. So I literally put in blue light bulbs behind these knee walls. And all it gave was a little bit of blue light on the ceiling tiles. The next day, I got murdered on Facebook. I was taking the whole church to hell. Like, I mean, we're changing the culture of the church. The devil's coming. Like, it was bad. And I remember sitting there, like, it's just a light. What you, like, it's a light bulb. It's a different color. Like, man, you know, I, it's not for everybody. I get it. But I remember hearing that from somebody speaking into me. And sometimes it's easier when you're hearing everybody else, when they know your stuff and they put it out there. But man, it, what if I felt like I was actually taking the church in the wrong direction? What if I wasn't in alignment with our pastor, not getting the direction from him? I, I could have been ashamed of what happened and carried that. And I could have been so scared to do anything else because I'm telling you, people are vicious online. Those people are like computer Nazis. They can get back there and they can say whatever they want online with no repercussions because you know what? Like, listen, if we were all being honest, like you'd come, you'd want to go through that screen and punch somebody, Right. But man, they're hiding behind that keyboard. Good thing you're 300 miles away from me right now. Just being honest. You've all, I see a lot of you laughing because everybody's afraid to say what I'm saying right now. But it's true. You can feel so ashamed. But man, when you know that you are clean and you're not, you don't have any shame in your life, it doesn't matter what people say about you. You know exactly who you are. You know exactly what your assignment is supposed to be. You know exactly what you're supposed to be doing. But people Look for heroes other themselves. Why? Because the moment you show weakness, the moment you show your past, the moment you show an insecurity, now you become like Spider-Man. You get to see the real guy behind the mask. And so it's easier for us. Remember, go back to when it was like defund the blue, all that junk a couple of years ago. Well, guess what? I wouldn't want to be a police officer either. They were setting them up the whole time. I would never want to be the hero because you, you can get set up. And people have done that over and over, not just to police officers. I'm talking about to even in relationships, setting people up in relationships because they find that you're not as perfect as they thought you were. So how do you deal with shame? I was reading a book, Winning the War in Your Mind. I believe the author is Craig Rochelle. Great book. I use it with a lot of people I work with. It's, it's, there was a, there's a lot of great information, but there is one thing that really changed my life when I was reading this book. And it was talking about the differences between a rut and a trench. See, a rut happens, uh, a rut is caused from an accident, right? If you're, if you're going down, uh, a lot of the men in here will hunt. So if, if you're driving down uh, 
the road and there's a lot of snow, especially when you're trying to hang your stand if you're late to it in the winter. Uh, you can veer off the road, you, you get into a ditch, and all of a sudden now, what do we do? Drive reverse, drive reverse. <laughs> then you bury your car and you create a rut. So a rut is based off of an accident. You didn't plan on it, you're there, and you end up making more of a mess because you're trying to get in and out and you're trying to maneuver. It, it, here in, I mean, with our, all of the four seasons that we have, with all the rain that we get, you see it quite often. But a trench is something that's intentional. A trench, you have to plan and map out. And when you look at the rut, there are ruts that we cause in our lives by the very things that we get involved in and the things that we allow to be spoken over us. And so when you get in a rut, there are some things when somebody declares over you and you start to feel that's you and you feel like you can't get out of it, you're just going again and again. It's like the same cycle for you. You're in a rut. It's built off of shame and now you're stuck because that's who you think you are. But if you would build a trench which is being very intentional in the direction, getting your tools, you're now building a trench to get yourself out of the mess. That's why you have to go to Romans chapter 12, verse 2, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. It's a transformation of the minds. We all have ruts in our minds where the enemy has spoken into our lives and said, hey, this is who you are. This, you came from a poor family, you're always going to be poor. You came from a broken family, you'll always have a broken family. You came from a home of addicts, you're always going to be an addict. We get into these ruts and the Bible says the only way to get out of that rut is dig a trench. Start changing the narrative. Start changing the words. I am an overcomer. It matters on the words you speak over yourself. It matters on what you're saying. It matters on who you hang out with. It matters the voices that you allow into your life. And so it matters what we do because we can either stay in a rut or you can dig a trench and change your minds. Why? Because shame is attached to guilt sometimes. And the Lord said, listen, he can use guilt because that can bring you to a place of repentance. But when you repent, it's time to move forward. It's not to live in the same lane. It's not to live in the same thing, understanding like, hey, this is who I am. This is what I'm going to be. And so I want to give you one last story. It's the story of the prodigal son. Many of you know this. It's in Luke chapter 15. You'll read this story. And here you find a father with his two boys. His youngest son says, hey, you know what? I want my inheritance early. And so his dad gives him the inheritance early. And he goes, and the Bible says he goes to another country, to a foreign land, and he squanders all of his finances. He has nothing left. Well, what happened, now a famine comes in, and he's hungry. He has nothing. He's got to go find work. So he finds a farmer that has pigs, and he's going to work with the pigs. And so he ends up sitting, and he finds himself in this slop. And I always thought the story went that he would eat the husks of the pigs. Well, that's not true. Scripture actually says that he wanted the husks, but nobody would give him any. Not even his own employer would feed him. So here, this prodigal son is sitting with these pigs, and he is desiring what they're eating. He's wanting what they're eating, and he can't even have that. And, and scripture says that he came to himself. Watch 15, uh, chapter 15, verses 17 through 19 in Luke. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and will say unto my father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. I am no more worthy to be called the son of Make me as only the hired servants. So here, his boy is like, you know what? I can go home. 
And at least I can I can eat and I can be clean. So now the guilt of his decision is weighing on him. Right. So all of a sudden now that guilt has set in. And what does he do? He gets up. There's an action. There's a call to action. I'm going to change what I'm doing. It is a call of repentance. I am walking away from this lifestyle and I'm going to go back home where I belong, where I was a child. I was the son of my father. Here I am a vagabond. I have nothing here. Well, that to me would have been great if he would have just took off and left. But watch where the, sh- the shame would set in. Verse 19, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as thy hired servants. So all of a sudden now, shame has changed his identity. All of a sudden, he went from being a son to now he's okay with just being a servant in his father's house. Why? Because he made a bad decision. Well, he dealt with the guilt. He changed his his direction. He's moved on and he's going home. But all of a sudden now he's willing to negotiate his sonship because of how he sees himself, because of the shame that he is bearing inside of him. Aren't you thankful that when you sin and you make your mistakes, aren't you grateful that you can come to a place of guilt and say, hey, I don't belong here and repent and walk away and not have to change the sonship that you have with Jesus Christ? That God doesn't say, hey, listen, you made too many mistakes. You've gone too far. You messed it all up. You know what? No, you are now just a servant. You're no longer my son. And so that hit me to where it's like, man, that's a great miracle in that story for me to see the the revelation of like, hey, I don't have to just live in guilt, but I don't have to live in shame and compromise that I am the son of the king because I made a mistake. It gets even better than that. Luke chapter 15 and verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. For years, I thought the point of this was the was the 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 father showing an act of forgiveness. I thought that was the whole point of the story. It's like, wow, he messed up, came home, his father forgave him, ran and, 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 and just embraced him. But now I'm looking at a son that is changing the direction of his life because he realized Why should I be in the slop with these pigs when I could go home? I see a son that's willing to live in shame, though, and say, hey, you know what? Just make me the servant now. I won't even have to be the son. But here's his father that sees him from afar. You have to understand the culture, though, in this story. In that community, if you were to leave your house with an inheritance and you squandered it, you were in embarrassment to the to the community, to your family and to the whole community. And there is a there is a ceremony called the Kazaza. What would happen at the Kazaza is if a son came home and squandered everything, what they would do is they would bring a large pot to the city center. and Everybody in the community would come in and what they would do is call him out and say, you have embarrassed us. You have caused us shame. You have squandered your inheritance. They would break this pot and the community would disown you. They would walk away from you and you were held as a vagabond. You were no longer welcomed in that community. But now look at it from the father's lens. In that culture, if you ever exposed your thighs, they would call that, that was nakedness. If you exposed your thighs, it was nakedness. If a man was to ever expose his thighs, he would then also be an embarrassment and a shame to the community and they would excommunicate him. They would would isolate the family from the community. His father, knowing that his son made a mistake, saw his son from afar off. There was only two options. 
if his son made it all the way home, he would have carried the shame the rest of his life because of the mistakes he made in the past. And his son was willing to change who he was, his identity, to become a servant because he had accepted the shame that he did. But watch what the father did. The Bible says that he ran to his son. How do you run in that culture? You had to literally pick up your garments, expose your thighs to go on a full run. His father exposed himself with nakedness to the community. So now the community, instead of looking at the son, took their eyes off of the son, looked at the father who took the shame from the son away. And now the father took on the shame so his son could make it home and not have to go through the shameful uh, ordeal of that ceremony to be excommunicated from that community. That to me was the story. Was you can either live in guilt and walk away from it, or you can stay in shame and you can allow it to change who you really are, what God called you to be, what God called you to do. I want us to stand. Every one of us in this room, we've all had to deal with shame. Every one of us in this room, we've all made mistakes. Every one of us in this room have ruts in our minds to where it's like we keep going back to the same things. We keep fighting. Why? Because someone labeled you as something. Somebody called you. Somebody spoke something negative into your life. Somebody said something to you that was hurtful. Somebody has declared something into your life. All you've ever seen was abuse. All you've ever witnessed was hurt. All you've ever witnessed were something violent, something impure. And so that's all you think you can be is like, this is the only way I can be a father. This is all I know. You become a victim of your past, a statistic to your history. And here, Jesus is saying, listen, you don't have to live in shame because the very people that we will praise and lift and lift our, our, our words that we use when we're singing songs like David, those, very, those were people that lived in shame and yet God still used them and they were able to walk away from their shame. And so if you're in this room and you are fighting shame, you are embarrassed of some things in your past, today is a new day for you. We celebrated it this morning. This is Pentecost Sunday. For many of you, you might not even understand what that means. There were four feasts and we won't get into them. There was the Passover, which was the crucifixion, the unleavened bread, which was the burial, and then the first fruits was the resurrection, and then you have Passover, which was when the Holy Ghost fell on people. That's when 50 days after the resurrection, God allowed his spirit to come. John 14, 18 says, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. That's Jesus. I'm not going to leave you comfortless. I'm coming to you. And if you look at Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it says, but you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. So not only did he come and allow you to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, has made that available to everybody, but once you receive his spirit, you now have the power to not be shameful anymore. You don't have to be the same person anymore. You don't have to be identified by the same struggles anymore. So I invite us to the front as we're going to get ready to sing here in just a moment. The Holy Ghost can deliver you. If this is your first time, maybe second or third time here, and you're saying, listen, I'm, I'm done trying to live this life of shame, things I'm embarrassed. I, I feel like I, I can't break the cycle. I can't break the rut. I, I, can't, I can't get traction in my life anymore. Build a trench today. Let's put the shovel in the ground and let's start making some different decisions. Because Peter said, listen, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, and you will receive the Holy Ghost. The first step is all you have to do is repent. Lord, I'm sorry. There were things that happened to me. I, I didn't ask for this. God, there were some decisions I made. I'm, I'm actually sorry I made those choices. I, I made those decisions. I've said those things. 
And listen, scripture says that it's in 1 John chapter 1 and 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not only does he forgive you of your sins, go to Psalms 103 and verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. East and west never cross each other. What he's telling us is, listen, if you'll ask me to forgive you of your sin, I'll forgive you and then I'll forget about it. I won't even remember what you did in the past. Some of you have been asking God to forgive you over and over and over again. Listen, when you ask him to forgive you, that's enough. He's already heard you. You now have to learn how to forgive yourself. You now have to learn how to walk in his calling, not being the guilt is gone. He's forgiven you, but you can't let go of the shame because all you know is, man, you know what? I lied. I'm a liar. I stole. I'm a thief. I have substance abuse issues. I'm an addict. I come from a divorce situation. I'll never have a relationship. You'll come and we'll walk through these issues. Why? Because shame is still attached. Shame is still, you haven't let go of shame. And so I want us today to begin to pray. And listen, if you're struggling with something this morning, this is the moment you can leave your shame at this altar. You can lay it down right here and say, God, I might have never said sorry about this. There are things I've looked at I shouldn't have looked at. Things I've said I shouldn't have said. Things I've done that I, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done those things. God, I, I can't do it on my own anymore. It's obvious. I can't fix it. I can't do it on my own. I need you to help me. I need you to come here and help fix this for me. And when he does, if you've already been baptized in the name of Jesus, then you begin to worship him and accept your forgiveness. Leave it at the altar. Leave it here. But if you have not, this is the perfect opportunity for you to change your life and say, you know what? I'm going to take my next step, and that is to go in that water and to be baptized in his name because I want to be a different creature. I want to become a new man. I can be filled with his spirit. I can have the power to be an overcomer. I can't obviously have done it on my own and it hasn't worked out, but I can change it right now. And so let's begin to worship him and, and pray and seek his face and say, God, I'm so sorry, Lord. I'm sorry for things I've said and done. There are things, poor decisions that I've made, God. I, I should have never done that, Lord. But here I am asking you to forgive me. Here I am at your feet, God, trying to lay this stuff back down. 